This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing. And what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live. And that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. So, guys, I would say the word of the week is fans. We've got a lot of them. They are back out. They have been starving for sports. And those fans, they were rabid, Lynchy. I mean, to a point where maybe it was a little annoying to the players, but fun for us to watch um, from a distance. What did you make of the PGA? And as such a serious golfer and a golf fan that you are, there was, there was something special that happened. Well, first of all, you had the most popular guy in the field, Phil Mickelson. And when he was uh, leading going into the last round on Sunday, he said, okay, when are the wheels going to fall off? And they didn't. He just was stronger and stronger. And then, you know, word spreads around the golf course and people are watching other matches. Hey, you got to get over and watch Mickelson and Kepka. This is going to be something. So by the time they got to the 18th hole, all 10,000 people were on the fairway. I did not have a problem with it because it reminded me of 1962 when Arnold Palmer was at the final round of the British Open with Cal Nagel. And he was, you can just Google this and look at it on YouTube, the same thing. He got swallowed up by the crowd. Nagel came out first, and his caddy came out, and they were laughing. Palmer comes out, and he pretends he's limping and holding onto his shoulder like somebody hurt him. Then he turned around, and he was laughing, and he, he hugged, uh, he patted Cal Nagel on the back and putted away. Mickelson said it was a little unnerving, but it was really awesome. And I thought that was great. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's tough. I mean, he just protected his ribs so nobody would hit him accidentally. Kepka, by the way, was just a, just a whiny little baby about the whole thing. I mean, I think he should have, saw, should have seen some fun and some enjoyment and some uniqueness in it. It's going to become an iconic moment, trust me. When, when years from now, when you look back at some of the great moments in golf, that's going to be considered one of them. Well, I have to say, Barr, you know, one of the things that golf needs, and no shade, Lynchy, to, you know, your core uh-huh. sport here, but needs a little bit of excitement every now and again. Yeah, and, sure. And we haven't, had, um, we haven't had this sort of excitement, especially without Tiger. That was something else we talked about with Seth Waugh. And so Mickelson may be the man uh, for this moment. And by the way, Michael Barr, he made a lot of money. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it for a second. The, he made about $2 million winning this tournament. But, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, when he, and the matches are coming back, he made the last time when he played with Tiger, he made about $9 million doing that. So I think golf is going to be exciting. to watch. It is exciting to watch right now. But the other thing that – that caught me about that when Mickelson won. We always talk about the young guns out there, the, the Kepkas and, and all the others out there. But here's a man that was 50 years old, the oldest ever, to win the PGA Championship. And there he, and I, there he is winning it. And I'm wondering if that had some of the sexiness involved in, in that win. All right, so let's talk about the match. The match mm-hmm. uh, part two, uh, Lynchy. This is... Straight up made for TV. It is celebrity <laughs> golf. 
it is trash talking. I have to feel like it is the sort of trash talking that I dare say goes on in suburban Boston there um, when you're out uh, you're out on the course. But people love tuning in. I mean, this is this is what we want, right? We want to be flies on the wall for really good athletes. Just messing with each other right <laughs> you know the only thing would be more exciting about this is if phil stepped aside and had kepka come in and he goes head to head with bryson DeChambeau because this is right out of this is right out of wwe this is right out of muhammad ali with howard cosell and joe frazier on the stage this is right out of any type of you know in your face i'm better than you and this is going to this is going to be awesome. But I would love to see Kepka in there going against DeChambeau. And I don't know who I put my money on on a street fight. I might put it on DeChambeau. So here's here is going to be the the, the lineup: <laughs> Tom Brady, Phil Mickelson versus Aaron Rodgers and Bryson DeChambeau. Like that is that's compelling television. Yeah. That's compelling golf because you know you've got a, a, a you've got. Some goats there, uh, you know. Certainly, I mean, the non-golfers, the, f- the football players. You know, Aaron Rodgers has become in in a different way than Tom Brady. You know, kind of this cult figure. <laughs> you know, he's trying out to host Jeopardy, so you know he's got his whole shtick going on. He obviously is in a bit of a, shall we say, labor disagreement with his current team, <laughs> um, Michael Barr. So you know, I don't watch a huge amount of golf on television. That I confess, and I know play golf, or I haven't in a number of years but uh i'm tuning into this i you know mic'd up i, I want to hear what these guys have to say because lynch you know better than anyone tom brady can talk some trash oh he's great at it. he's a great <laughs> trash talker you know he goes on and on and on and on and he was he was pretty quiet when he was in his match with tiger and phil and peyton manning uh he's this he's going to be a, a much different guy this time around because remember he ripped his pants and then he wasn't yes. playing well oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right well and he's got you know he's got that fresh super bowl ring that you know maybe yeah. he'll he'll uh be sporting for for this match so uh tune in for that for sure speaking of tuning in i i'll tell you one thing i am watching and in part because uh i'm interested in a number of the teams playing the nba playoffs are off to an unbelievable start here in new york i have to say it is all anybody is talking about michael barr you know what? Never mind that the garden was rocking when the Knicks won. The garden has a different sound to it. The garden that you can hear it when you're listening to the play-by-play, and it and it's not just at the garden because the Islanders advanced for the next round. They're playing Boston, and mm-hmm. and it was rocking when the Islanders were playing, and having the crowd come back means a lot and i think it's gonna mean big time news for the nba and and let's face it it is exciting to watch when the crowd is there for real you don't i mean okay they tried the piped in crowd and and i obviously i get why because we were going through the COVID right at its peak but now that people are coming back you can't anticipate what the crowd is going to do when you piping in when you get the real crowd noise you get the oohs and the ahs i I love it well you get oohs and ahs you get spike lee dancing along the sideline if you're talking about new york i mean it is unbelievable (laughs) what's going on what's going on up in boston what i'm yawning how was that nick's dynasty that was 1973 the last nba title 
what we've, what we've was the, the, what what happened uh, with the Celtics this week? What? Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so how many one two sixteen seventeen banners? I'm counting Listen, in the ceiling. I count two for the Knicks. Uh oh. Just drop my headset. Uh, I did fall down. Um, <laughs> I got up to make a point. Um, listen, I am far from a Knicks fan in this regard. You know, the, and I'm about as big a Knicks fan as Trey Young is at, at this point. Um, and he was he was abused uh, literally and figuratively uh, in his visit. What I will say from a business perspective, and and you can argue with this if you want, Lynchy. The Knicks are good for business. The Knicks are good for the business of the NBA because whatever you think about New York, and part of it, let's be honest, the Knicks have been terrible. I mean, this was their first playoff win this week since 2013. Home playoff win, first home playoff win since 2013. It's the first time Knicks fans have been able to celebrate a winning playoff game um, in practically a decade. So there's pent-up demand for sure, <laughs> but it's a massive TV market, and these sorts of showdowns, even you know what you're seeing between the Suns and the Lakers out west is really good um, for the NBA and shows you that, yeah, we limped through the bubble, but you know this is how sports are meant to be consumed, and it's much better for business. And pretty bad soon, boys, every one of these bills. <laughs> yeah, the bad boys of Detroit. You can, Do you have more titles than the Knicks? How many do you have? Oh, ow, ooh, ow. Good Lord. <laughs> ooh, I'm bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> Medic. <laughs> but if I'm Adam Silver and I'm sitting yeah. a few blocks, uh, you know, a few blocks yep. east at NBA headquarters from Madison Square Garden, I like this. Nobody has more front runners in the history of the NBA than the New York Knicks. And it's good because when when they when the good things are happening, Spike Lee's in the front row, right. all the celebrities start showing up, and usually they're just setting themselves up for a gigantic letdown. I oh, hope that yeah. doesn't happen. I'd love well, to see the Knicks. Yeah. Listen, I mean, I think – can you imagine, like, if we had, a, like, a Knicks-Lakers fine? I mean, that that is yeah. far from happening. And listen – if we looked a little south of, of at least where where I'm sitting, um, you got the Sixers looking very good. You look even closer <laughs> closer south, um, and you've got the Brooklyn Nets who look really, really good. And obviously there's a different um, kind of New York excitement around that team. But, you know, these big franchises are really good um, for the bottom line. They're good for TV revenue. And now that you've got – people allowed back in stadiums it's good for the teams who who by the way lost tens of millions of dollars each because they couldn't get fans into those seats last year so this is a it's a huge sigh of relief for the owners of those teams um and you know and again in in the case of the knicks and 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 i i'm sorry to say the hawks um it's been a long time since they've had a a really uh exciting winning franchise so um it's all good it's all good Yep. I swear, I thought I saw Willis Reed in the stands. Oh, look, I just, I, you know, if they if they play if the Knicks play the Lakers in the NBA Finals, Willis Reed has to come limping out of the walkway. Onto the floor. <laughs> he has to, all right. And you know they're going to play that video on the on the jumbotron a thousand times. <laughs> Today, what a treat! We are so excited to have Lee Steinberg with us. I mean, talk about the biggest names in sports. A guy who has seen it all. A super agent. He defines the term super agent in many ways. Lee, really, really nice to have you with us. Nice to be with you. So let's talk about kind of where you are at this moment, because you have pulled off a 
a pretty remarkable comeback in in some ways. Rebuilt um, your agency, your business. We're going to talk about uh, a guy named Patrick Mahomes a little bit later in the show who you negotiated a historic contract for. But this is 2.0 in many ways for you. Tell us about sort of the recent journey for you. Well, you know, when I struggled with alcohol uh, and and had an especially devastating crash back in 2010, um, all I said to myself is, I'll be sober and I'll be a good father. My dad had two core values, which were treasure relationships, especially family, and try to make a meaningful difference in the world. And I could see I wasn't really living up to either of them. And uh, I, I always knew that, um, I mean, at that point, I represented 62 first-round draft picks in the NFL in the very first pick eight times, and uh, uh, we had 12 players in the Hall of Fame. I, I knew that part of it would would be uh, uh, okay to rebuild because I could still find athletes that wanted to be role models, that wanted to retrace their roots. Um, but uh, staying sober, and I'm now in my 12th year of continuous sobriety, and being a good father were my goals. Lee, first of all, bless your heart, because 11 years of going on 12 now sober, I mean, that's that's a great thing. And you have seen the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows. Can you talk about that path? And now that you're you're back up on your game, can you talk about that, uh, what went on well, in your Well, basically, life? yes. I, uh, you have to break denial. If anyone's out there listening and they're struggling – with any kind of substance, and they're hopeless, uh, just know there's help. And so I did a 12-step program with a unique fellowship. I had plenty of help from uh, people around me. Um, And you have to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You have to believe that somewhere in all this detritus and destruction, uh, there's a a better time. So resilience is the quality, really, that uh, saves you in that. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not a starving peasant in Darfur. I'm not with the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany. I, I don't have any crippling disease. What excuse do I not have? So, you know, we started back a firm and, and in 2016 had uh, a first-round draft pick in the quarterback Paxton Lynch, and then the next year was Mahomes, and last year was uh, Tua Tongo Vailoa. So it's a very vibrant and lively uh, practice, and we have a younger CEO, um, Chris Cabot, who's who's running a lot of the day-to-day uh, parts of it. But we have a, a really great team, and we're still doing the same thing. We're asking athletes to retrace their roots and set up a high school scholarship fund uh, or work with a church or boys and girls club go back to the college, university, like Edgar and James did at Miami or Troy Aikman at UCLA and set up a scholarship fund. And then at the professional level, um, put together a board of leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders mm-hmm. that can execute a, a, a foundation. So work done is just put the 175th single mother and her family into the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment. And, and so it's athletes changing lives. I know you've already said brand is king. How did you rebuild your brand and, more importantly, your trust, not, not with, with former clients but with potential future clients? So you have to be realistic about what the challenges are facing you. Someone might ask, 
uh, how can you guarantee you'll stay sober, which you can't. You know, you've been out for five or six years. Do you still have the relationships? Um, you know, you're not a spring chicken exactly. You know, will you be around for our uh, son's whole career? So you have to have uh, uh, well-thought-through answers to all of that. I don't have a divine right to represent players, but uh, we had a big baseball practice, big basketball practice, Olympic stars, boxers, and um, I knew that no one had represented more high-round draft picks, but I'm looking to profile certain sort of young man. So you're looking on the college campus for someone who's bright, has a, a zealous work ethic, and also it has a good heart. And if you can find those types, I thought I'd still relate. Well, and it's interesting to, to pick up on that, Lee. I mean, Mahomes is a fascinating example of someone, and I've read a little bit of, of what you've said in the past about the draft process, even for him he was not, to mix sports metaphors here, he was not a slam dunk high round draft pick in many ways. So what did you see in him that, you know, told you that not only would he be, you know, obviously a terrific MVP player, future Hall of Famer, I think it's fair to say, but also, you know, sort of a man who would meet the moment even off the field. He had been raised by a father who was a professional athlete, and so he saw the highs and lows, and he understood inherently how to stay grounded, and he was raised well, so his primary focus is on other people. He asked you if you met, how are you doing, what, what's going on with you, and um, so that makes a natural leader, and then he's really bright and has an eidetic memory so he can remember every single play. You had to look past the fact that Texas Tech had such a miserable defense that they were having 50, 55, 60 points scored against them. So it put the pressure on uh, Patrick to, to score on every drive. So he made throws and did things that people thought were gunslingerish. And, uh, but you had to be able to project beyond that because you've never seen as freakish an arm as uh, he has in the touch. But here's what's really critical for a franchise quarterback. It's now become the uh, preeminent position in pro football, and a team's going to have a hard time going to the Super Bowl without one. So you look for someone you can build around for 10 to 12 years, someone you can win uh, because of rather than with. But most importantly, what do you do in adversity? How does that athlete perform when he's thrown a couple interceptions, the game's getting out of hand, the crowd is booing, the center's looking at the quarterback like he must be on hallucinogens, and what game's getting out of hand? So can he adopt a quiet mind, compartmentalize, and elevate his level of play in critical situations to take a team to and through? And you could see that that he had the capability of that and and then it really helped that he had a year behind alex smith who was a really generous mentor and had you seen someone sort of of that mold before lee i mean like who who did you as you were sort of 
putting him into even the pantheon of your own clients or even the the history of the game like who did you who did you say okay well this is a he could go into a situation like x or he could think about a career that's similar to y well i had Troy Aikman and Steve Young and Warren Moon and, and Mark Brunell and Drew Bledsoe and a whole, starting with Steve Bartkowski in 1975. And I had seen what was necessary to make a franchise quarterback, to be at that special level. And um, if you watch him throw the ball, he can do things with it that I just haven't seen. And I've got three quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame. And he can feather a ball he went back to ESPN during the scouting process, and they take uh, athletes outside, and they have many, many stories up. They have a walkway. And so the big test is, can you throw the ball over the walkway? It takes a prodigious heave to do it. <laughs> and sitting behind there was a dummy in a chair. But, you know, if you could make it over, that's a good deal. So he goes back to throw. He throws it over this gargantuan uh, walkway and lands it in the lap of the dummy on the other side. And you have to look at that and say, oh, my goodness, um, it's uh, unbelievable. So, But the thing about him is he never stops working to make himself better. So what you see is the tip of the iceberg. Um, what you don't see is the extraordinary amount of time he puts into preparation over and over again and the fact that contemporary athletes stay in shape, they never get out of shape. And uh, um, so it was pr- no one could ever predict a player in his first year of starting would be MVP. Right. I mean, because uh, uh, normally the progression of quarterbacks is so – it takes time to read the field and to slow the defense down and all that. And when you see people like uh, Joe Burrow uh, or Justin Herbert last year, that's an anomaly. Right. Um, you're not supposed to be that good that fast. So we'll see how they go down the road. But um, he had the other experience, which is a whole year to sit and learn, and, um, um, and, and it helped him. Uh, uh, if I had my druthers, all my young quarterbacks would do that, but um, uh, don't look for cheers from them about that proposition. So, Lee, we were talking a little bit about Patrick Mahomes, and you know that deal, that recent deal, record-setting. Uh, many people would argue, absolutely, he's a, he's a bargain at twice the price. This is not your first rodeo in terms of negotiating record-setting deals, but so take us inside the mechanics of that, if you can, because there some creativity involved it, it did feel like not to you know blow too much smoke but this this was a deal that was made for you to figure out so um uh my younger partner chris cabot sort of took a little bit of lead and uh, the the challenge was how do you maximally compensate the player while quieting the fears that somehow he might leave in free agency and giving him the best chance to ensure um, that have a supporting cast that will get him to the Super Bowl. No one benefits more greatly from being in the Super Bowl. Uh, And when you have a hyper-competitive client, you have to do so. Um, 
you know, we have this salary cap system. Um, normally, with draft picks, there's not much creativity to the process. Uh, it, they're somewhat slotted. But with a veteran, you can use a variety of different um, um, mechanisms on guarantees and uh, sort of think outside the square and figure out a way to to maximally compensate your player at the top of the game, but at the same time making sure that he's uh, successful. And, uh, and, and they need security at, at that position. You need to know you can build around someone for a long time. And, and uh, so it's sort of important. Now, the reality is that most franchise-type players end up renegotiating their contract um, over and over again, mostly because of salary cap. And so, um, you know, we'll see what happens down the line. But the point is, he's one happy camper in Kansas City. He loves the city. Yeah. He's got a charitable foundation there. He bought into part of the Kansas City Royals baseball team. And uh, it was sort of a perfect fit. So there's a big love affair going on between him and the community. And you, you want to, sustain, uh, to see that uh, just grow. You pulled off that super deal with Patrick Mahomes, but have you learned anything about deals like that going forward with other athletes? What what has that taught you? So what you can see is that the television revenue is going to increase the market. Would you have thought that in a cratered economy and with the pandemic uh, somewhat raging that the NFL television contract would go up by 83% for CBS and Fox and about a third for uh, ESPN. That's Those dollars are, look, when I started, it was $2 million. Each team got his share to the national TV contract per year. Amazing. And last year it was over $200 million. And with this new contract, each team eventually is going to get up to about $350 million uh, per year just in television revenue. So the reason for that is loss leader bidding. So it's not that you can a uh, network can make so much money uh, by buying rights fees at those exorbitant rates, but what they can do is show the promos for their Monday through Friday advertising, uh, get more viewers for the network, and sports delivers, and the overall value of the network goes up. So it's happy days ahead. The amazing thing is football, finally now with these quarterbacks, uh, has players making the same or more amount of money as the highest-paid players in other sports. And this will just um, uh, continue. I think we'll see a real renewed love affair uh, between uh, the U.S. population and, and all team sports. And uh, we, you got to a point last year where, you know, after you've watched the Tiger King five times or, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, old Masters golf tournaments, it really nurtured uh, our love for uh, being involved with sports. Recruiting uh, athletes or clients is very competitive business. Um, can you just take me through, give me the Reader's Digest version. I know that you do background checks on athletes, and tell me when you're, you know you've got a comfort level with an athlete. So normally the discussion will start with the parents. They adopt the role of screeners. And so much of the discussion 
will go into a presentation with the parents, and while you're talking, their value system will come out, their style of parenting will come out, their hopes and aspirations. And the most important skill in all this is listening. If you can create enough trust around another human being that they'll cut below the surface, peel back the layers of the onion, and show you their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams. If you can put your head into the head and heart of someone else. Um, So the job really is to understand uniquely, not generically, that athlete. And who he is and what is, you know, how does he feel about short-term economic gain and long-term economic security and family and geographical location and being a starter and being on a winning team and to really understand um, what motivates that particular person. And so that comes out in the process. And normally then there'd be a cut to less agents, a cut to less agents. And then many times we meet the player after the playing season is over between the uh, season and the, and the bowl games and established rapport. But in these days, uh, uh, the fortunate uh, athlete is surrounded by an uncle a, a, or a campus uh, compliance panel, and they have help in the process. Lee, you know, one of the names that, that you mentioned is Steve Young, and, and I just happened to be reading his terrific autobiography that he wrote with Jeff Benedict. And, you know, you pop up in there quite a bit, and, and you pointed out – as we were getting ready for this show that, you know, Patrick Mahomes was record setting that contract. So was Steve Young's when he went into the USFL. And for our younger uh, listeners, you're going to have to Google that because you may not know what the heck it is. But it is fascinating to think about, you know, those bookends, as it were, of your career as it sits right now, Lee. As you think about those negotiations, as you think about the way that owners have changed across the leagues uh, that you've been working in, especially in football. How has that part of the equation changed, especially with the owners? It's changed because contemporary owners have made their fortune in the free and tumble uh, capitalist system, and they come in as successful businessmen, and they view it as a business. They love the sport aspect, but they view it as a business. So they're uh, very rational about the way they uh, negotiate. In older days, the only thing business that an uh, owner owned was the NFL franchise. So if you were in Pittsburgh or, or the old St. Louis Cardinals or the Cincinnati Bengals, that was those uh, owners lived off that revenue. So they felt economically pressed all the time until the uh, television uh, and the rules were so different. Remember that for many, many years, football players signed a contract. And then at the end of it, there was an option clause that stopped them from going anywhere else. So there was no free agency. And suppose a player was playing at 500 and now the next year he's worth two million. By offering a 10% raise, the owner uh, could keep that player. So you have a very different type. Now, the USFL was wild because anytime you have leverage, which players normally don't have, I mean, it's not like uh, if you're negotiating a first-round contract and for a, a draft pick, uh, 
that you have a great alternative. Oh, yeah, some, uh, Troy Aikman's going to go back to UCLA and uh, not play right. for the Cowboys. He's going to develop the new theory of superconductivity. Uh, no, maybe he'll play cello in the Westwood uh, uh, <laughs> Philharmonic. Uh, I mean, they, they obviously know that, that their last offer is the best, but when you have a, a, a league like that, and Younger listeners won't remember, but Hall of Fame, the USFL picked the NFL draft clean. They yeah. signed Reggie White. They signed Jim Kelly, Herschel Walker, Mike Rozier, Steve Young. They they took the biggest stars. So for a few days, it was heady times. And in Steve's situation, the irony was all he wanted to do was play, and he didn't really care about money. So we end up with this contract that's, that makes headlines around the entire world, and it leads off the Dan Rather uh, nightly news. And and there are headlines, and I still have a Japanese newspaper. All it says is 42-something or other. It was 42 million, but I couldn't read the rest of the headlines. Um, and so here it's like now we're associated with sports economics run amok. And uh, that was a wild owner of uh, William Oldenburg of the USFL, which you'll read if you read. Oh, my uh, God. They're like uh, thrown glasses and offices <laughs> that are like trashed in the process, right? Yeah, it's uh, – uh, you know, I've written a book, Winning is with Integrity on Negotiating, and it's it's uh, a great theory. However, you know, when Bill Polian, uh, when I'm doing Andrew and James, has us marched out of training camp uh, – <laughs> <laughs> because we won't agree to a contract, right? Um, th- there's some interesting experiences. All right. Everybody knows that I'm just a geeky nerd, and I- I'm going to go there. The movie Jerry Maguire was based off of you, and I, I just wonder what were your thoughts about that? I mean, did Tom Cruise come to you and say, do you say show me the money? I mean, what 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 happened in that movie uh, that uh, – really made you a super household name? Um, Well, it was 1993, and the director, um, writer Cameron Crowe, who had done a movie called Fast Times at Richmond High, which I thought was really funny, uh, and a written rock criticism, called me and asked if he could follow me around uh, to pick up atmosphere for a film that would be centered on a sports agent. So in 1993, Drew Bledsoe was the first pick in the draft, and uh, Cameron came with me, and he flew up when we did a press conference with Bill Parcells in, in uh, Boston. And he came to the league uh, meetings that were in Palm Desert that year. He came to games with me, pro scouting day at SC, Super Bowl parties. Um, and I introduced him to people and told him lots and lots of stories. And then um, uh, my job as technical advisor was to vet the script so that Real sports fans know if the dialogue's phony or if the look is not right, so you have to make sure of that. And then I had the actors to work with, so I took Cuba Gooding Jr. with me down to the um, Super Bowl in Phoenix and made him pretend he was a wide receiver. He had to <laughs> hang out with Desmond Howard and Amani Toomer, who were wide receiver clients, uh, for a week. And uh, I actually showed the quarterback in the film, Jerry O'Connell, how to throw a spiral because – he had gone to NYU, and they didn't have uh, uh, football there. But show me the money. Um, 
we're out in Palm Desert, and I'm showing Tim McDonald, who was a, a safety playing for Arizona then, to a variety of different teams, and they go upstairs in the hotel, and um, uh, Lou Dobbs and Moneyline is on the television in the background on CNN. And so Tim is talking to Cameron about what he's looking for. And Cameron says, what, do you, what is it you're trying to get? So Tim gestures toward, towards the screen and says, I'm looking for a team to show me some winning. I'm looking for a team to uh, show me uh, respect. And then either Cameron wrote the line, show me the money, or Tim said the line, show me the money. But somehow out of that experience, it came. And so I have walked anywhere, pub, uh, anytime I go to an airport or out to dinner, I flew back from Las Vegas yesterday, and people walk up and they ask me to say those four words. <laughs> <laughs> so so when you watch on for 20 years. I can imagine. So when you watch the movie, did you smile or did you cringe? Oh, I smiled. I mean, Cameron, it's Cameron's brilliant creation. And, um, but I thought the part that was valuable was to show a more human side to uh, sports agentry and to understand that, yes, there's a crass uh, money-only business approach, but there's also real caring um, in relationships. And I thought that it humanized the, uh, the whole to, to give to give Jerry Maguire a crisis of conscience. It's the same crisis of conscience I had when um, I saw that my quarterbacks and other players kept getting hit in the head um, and became aware of the dangers of concussion. So what do you do at that point? And so what I've done is to hold 16 player safety conferences and campaign for more awareness, prevention, and cure. But uh, and I think the reason it was the highest-grossing sports film of all time uh, until um, The Blind Side is uh, there was a romantic relationship in it. And so, you know, Lee, as you, as you synthesize that and you sort of synthesize your, your recent experiences, you know, the whole notion of representation, it feels like, has changed. The business has changed uh, in a lot of ways. Over the course of your career, we have these empowered athletes. We have the power of social media. We have, you know, activism that is expected. And we have all these outside business interests that you talked about earlier in the conversation. So how does that change how you approach the business, how you build a firm, how you maybe hire and recruit your, your own talent and, and your own colleagues? Well, first of all, um, every athlete today has unprecedented power over their own brand. And so, so much is about branding. It's what someone displays on social media, then the currency for endorsements and other things is how uh, many followers does someone have Twitter or Instagram or all the rest? So it's it's developing that player. And with the name image likeness changes mm -hmm. at the NCAA coming, you're going to have people entering from high school who become marketable players in their collegiate days. And one would assume that um, if you want to represent them eventually that you'll have to be part of that marketing, and that's supposed to start this summer. Um, 
So who will benefit from that? Well, probably a college quarterback from a high-profile uh, program. So think uh, uh, Jameis Winston or Johnny Manziel or uh, Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Maybe a female uh, Olympic star or someone who plays in a sport that can go Olympics. But that will be a major change because um, instead of the process being such that player makes it in pro ball, it's a high profile, plays dramatically well, and is one of a few, it's going to start now in high school. And these players will be, you know, carving out their own uh, identity. But and then the the multiple uses of it are stunning. Um, you know, we did a event uh, uh, for Patrick Mahomes where he auctioned off some NFTs. Mm. And for those in the audience who don't know what they are, they're pieces of memorabilia. They can be a uh, iconic film. It can be a painting. It can be something that captures a moment. And then they go out in sets of 50 or unique ones are bargained for. Um, but uh, and I think he raised about $3.2 million for his charity in, in like 30 minutes. But what people were buying were things that only give you the rights over on your computer. Right. They don't actually exist in what we used to think of as real life. You're talking about collegiate sports. And I wonder if, obviously, football, I mean, that's, that's, there's money to be made there. But what about women's collegiate sports and basketball and things like that? Uh, is that basically an untapped market that's, that's waiting to, to grow? It, it all follows the television revenue. So that the uh, conundrum is that uh, if you showed more women's sports and people saw more women's basketball or women's volleyball, they'd be more popular. And the rationale for not showing more is that they're not popular. So uh, it, it goes round and round. Um, it, it, uh, uh, but I've always thought there was a market in, in soccer, in basketball, in volleyball, um, uh, golf, tennis, a uh, number of sports um, for female uh, athletes and and. You know, it just has to be marketed right. Women make the consumer purchase decisions in the majority in a household. And it's all about building backstory. If you can uh, create a compelling narrative as to why this is an interesting person, watch what they do for the Olympics. Um, They will star build all those. uh, I've represented Olympians, and they do a terrific job on – a terrific job on on NBC uh, building backstory. So I think that you have to give people a rooting interest. And so it's a chicken and egg television issue to me. That, that might be my mother calling me, telling me. My <laughs> <laughs> um, Lee, uh, up here in Massachusetts, financial literacy is, is a really hot-button topic. I'm involved in this program called Credit for Life, in which we talk to high school students about all the financial obligations that are coming down the track at you. And as you just mentioned, name, image, and likeness is coming at us very soon, whether we like it or not. 
do you slap yourself on the forehead sometime and just say, oh, my goodness, these guys I'm represented can't even balance a checkbook? So what we do, first of all, you have a number of universities that are now doing lifestyle programs that start to teach people financial literacy while they're on the college campus. Second of all, uh, we don't do it ourselves, but we make sure that each of our clients uh, has a financial planner in their life that will go through a budget, a financial plan, explain the tax system, explain the, the fact that you're obviously not going to play and make money at these levels forever. And um, so I think you'd find most contemporary athletes they may start a little slow because none of us on a college campus were mavens in that field, but they have support. And um, so I understand the that the stereotype is the athlete is bankrupt or something. I don't haven't found that experience. We have very very financially well set uh, players, and there's enough money in. Uh, in salaries today for any player who can play any kind of extended career to be economically set for life. Um, but you have to get them help from the start so they don't make the mistakes that you read about. So, Lee, as we wrap up here, I wanted to sort of end where we started a little bit, which is, you know, your comeback story in, in many ways. I think it, it's safe to say you're back. I mean, you you have um, you know you've achieved a lot uh, on the back of some real struggles, which, which you you know really transparently and, and honestly described. So, how do you feel right now? And 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 what what's the next thing for you? And 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 how are you feeling about that? Oh, um, I feel like midlife and uh, totally excited. I mean, there are real problems we can tackle through role modeling. You know, when Lennox Lewis says real men don't hit women, it can do more to change behavioral uh, uh, behavior in uh, young adolescents. They're all the environment, Sporting Green Alliance. Um, and uh, I'm about to write another book, and we're looking at um, people who want to do a, a, a movie, you know, on, on – a long arc of life, and uh, uh, I'll probably end up doing a, a podcast. And then there are exciting new. There's uh, all always new breakthroughs in sport. One of them for me now is is health and wellness. You know, whether it's hyperbaric oxygen or a light bed, we're finding ways to recover quicker from injuries to sustain. Um, energy late in a game and for the baby boomers sustain life. Um, and uh, there's uh, a rugby league is trying to get going now, and I agreed to, to help them go. So, And then there's always new athletes. Um, so the combination is really exciting. And uh, uh, I feel like I'm uh, just at the beginning all over again. Well, it's really good to spend some time with you. We look forward to catching up uh, in the near future. Just what you laid out is we, we could fill a whole season of episodes just talking about all of those uh, different things. So we'll be leaning on you uh, going forward to, to keep us honest on that. Great to share some stories uh, with you and, and hear about how you are, Lee Steinberg. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Clearly, guys, uh, a legend, to say the least. I mean, Lee Steinberg, he's seen it all. I mean, if you dig in a little bit to his his personal story, and he alluded to it right at the top of the conversation, has not yeah. been a, an easy road and in some ways, um, you know, not to be overly glib, but, you know, life imitating art to some extent, I mean, really uh, went through some tough stuff in the same way that the, his fictional counterpart, Jerry Maguire, did, um, but has come out the other side and, and, and listened point to the scoreboard, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, record-setting yeah. contract, he negotiated it, he and his firm. So um, he is uh, he's back, baby. Yep, he is. Uh, and, you know, entering his 12th year of sobriety, and he uh, remembered a couple of things his parents told him. Treasure all your relationships and try to make a difference in the world. And he felt that he was failing in both of those measures that his parents had instilled in him. And uh, good for him. And he was uh, open and very transparent, as you said, in his uh, sobriety and his uh, and when he stumbled and when he fell. And, and he's back, baby, as they say. He's back. Yeah. You know, Barr, it's interesting to hear him talk about, too, the – the differences in the players, the differences in the owners. I mean, this is a this is a far cry from where he started. Even though, you know, the the actual mechanics haven't changed that much. I mean, he's negotiating contracts between uh, an employee and a manager or an owner of a team, but yet it is a heck of a lot more complicated. I was surprised at that how long he's been in it. Back when he said that. The NFL teams share $2 million in television rights, and yeah. now it's $200 million. Yeah. I mean, the TVs back then had rabbit ears. And yeah. That's something else the youngin's going to have to look up on Google. <laughs> that's, that's been a long – he's been a long time in this business, and, and he knows his stuff. And, and again, I, I, I salute him. I mean, you talk about literally a, a V-shaped recovery. He is the person that's involved in that from the highs to the lows and then back to the highs. Yeah, I mean, Mahomes and Tua, it doesn't get much bigger than that in terms of uh, representation. But, you know, one thing we didn't talk to him as much about, although it is, he alluded to it, is this notion of, you know, they had this very wide portfolio in his previous iteration. And now if you think about his business, it's essentially much more of a boutique. It is focused on the NFL. It is focused on top players in the NFL. Um, And as he said, you know, helping them think through their their current and their future. And I also found it notable when we were discussing um, NIL and, and those sorts of issues, Lynchy, this notion of the economics of the game are such that as long as you get good advice, you shouldn't be like, you should be fine. You know, like th- this is not, we, we should not have the, the cases of like players blowing it all and not being able to support themselves that, that the economic landscape is such that, that that it's it's possible for for just about everybody who plays pro sports. No, it is. We've heard of so many stories of guys that buy seventeen cars and twelve houses, and you know what happened to it. I can't believe it's gone. But Lee uh, has a very structured layout uh, yeah. for his clients, as you said. He you must have your own financial advisor. Uh, and, or you won't be my client. He also demands, and he, he really didn't get into this too much, but he demands that each one of them uh, sets up a charity. Yeah. Um, and, and so they're very philanthropic. So all his clients are very well, they're good players, they're the stars in their league, but they are very well-rounded, and I think they are sort of, uh, I don't want to say protected uh, to, from failure, financial right. failure. And uh, which I think is uh, something that makes all the parents happy because he said he meets with the parents first. Yeah. And the most important skill in recruiting the parents is just listening. 
my goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Here we are. All right, here's, here's the topic. Now, if the Tokyo Olympics are scrapped, obviously it would damage the Japanese economy. Now, this is according to Nomura Research. If the games were canceled, it would cause a direct economic loss of this. And I want the answer in dollars. <laughs> Not yet. Not in yet. Not yet. Okay. I want the answer in dollars. A billion dollars. I'm going to go high. I'm going to go real high because I think it costs them $20 billion to set everything up. And I'm going to double that to $40 billion. Wow. Well, according to Nagahama, cancellation would cause a direct economic loss of about 1.4 trillion yen or 12.9 billion dollars. Okay. Uh, I lose again. I, I thought you were like, you know, you know what? He he might do this again. It's like, you know, super lynch he's gonna pull <laughs> yeah, this off. Exactly. And like, then twelve point three. Yeah. yeah right. Then you bid eighty thousand dollars on a yeah. broom, man, and the price <laughs> is right. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say one point seven trillion dollars and I was like, what the what um, so twelve billion dollars twelve and change billion dollars. It's a lot. Twelve point nine. Twelve point nine billion. Thirteen, yeah. Almost wow. thirteen. Wow. That's a lot wow. of money. Yeah. Wow. I mean and and I don't know. I mean, I think about the there. There is the economic loss for obviously Japan and for Tokyo. I mean, there's a lot lost. I mean, I think on an individual basis. I mean, think about the endorsements that won't happen of that athlete. That <coughs> not not the Simone Biles and the Katie Ledeckis and and those guys will, will be fine in in some regard, but. You know that that breakout star that we probably don't know about. And you think about like how famous Apollo Ono became. Yeah. That nobody yeah. knew who he was before the Olympics, and then yeah. he went on to a very lucrative. You know, I mean, there there are examples like that of you know these stars that we just don't know about for in the in the mainstream in the mainstream world. So huh. it'll be very sad if there's no Olympics. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week for you at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. Those drop on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And congratulations to Jason Kelly, who showed us the money in the number of the week. I'm Mike Lynch. <laughs> you can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. Oh, Lynch. You're listening to Bloomberg <laughs> Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world. <laughs>